Love can be exhilarating and wonderful, but it can also be painful and complicated. Join clinical psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. David Hawkins, as he reveals the truth about the good, the bad, and the ugly aspects of relationships. Listen in as he gives you practical tips for hope and healing. Welcome to the podcast, Mad in Love. All right. Hello. Welcome to another podcast, Mad in Love. I'm Dr. David Hawkins, and if you're new to the show, we want to give you a very warm welcome. I'm so excited. Today we have in the studio, we have Sharman Kimbrough and Dr. Lene Hunt, uh, my two very esteemed colleagues, and uh, I'm really excited to have them here. They have a long, long history of working with women and men with narcissistic and emotional abuse. They're extremely knowledgeable. You're going to find them probably more dynamic than me, which is just fine. I'm, an, I'm the host, and they're, they're the stars of the show. So, Sharman and Dr. Lene, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Tell us just a little bit about yourselves, and then we're going to dive into the topic of, of the invisible woman, which I think is going to be so informative. So, welcome to both of you. Good morning. And a little bit about yourselves. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm Charmin Kimbrough. I've been working here with the Marriage Recovery Center since 2015. So had a lot of experience working with people in high conflict marriages um, with a lot of confusion and emotional and narcissistic abuse. And so it's my pleasure to be here again, just talking a little bit about what we've seen that has been helpful and what works in bringing some healing to their lives. So good. So good. Dr. Hunt. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Yeah, I've um, I've been with the Marriage Recovery Center for a couple of years now, and before that, practiced um, as a clinical psychologist, but now as a relationship coach. And I really, I, I so appreciate the opportunity to work with the families that we do at MRC. And I love this topic that we're going to embrace today, because for me, it represents helping women recover themselves, recover who they are as people, recover the lives that they were meant for. It's so much about healing the damage done to them. So I'm excited to be here with you today. Well, my goodness, it, I, I say this in every podcast, I think, that these topics, you, you know, you, Dr. Hunt and Sharman, this information, as you well know, this information is gobbled up. It is devoured. And what that says to me is that there's just such a need out in the world for good, healthy, accurate information. And of course, what we what we give out, what you give out, this one word, hope. So we, we are going to give hope today. But Sharman, it was you and I in a previous uh, podcast where we talked briefly about the largeness of a man and the smallness of the woman in the in this dynamic of the narcissistic and emotionally abusive marriage, the emotionally abusive relationship. And so I really wanted to unpack this topic of the invisible woman. And that is not, a, obviously, I hope it's not seen by anyone as any kind of a pejorative statement that it's nothing ab about her, but it's what happens in a relationship. So 
Would you both kind of unpack that just a little bit? And we'll start with just what what do you see as far as this this dynamic of the invisible woman? How does that even happen? I just want had a couple of thoughts on that. One is that, you know, emotional abuse is is the act of refusing to make room for other people's perspectives or opinions or feelings. And then that ends up silencing, you know, those others, whoever they're powering over, silencing them by telling them what to see or think or feel, because again, there's no room for them to be different. And so the victim of that, the invisible woman ends up learning that it's not worth trying to speak up what they think or feel or what their perspective is. And then they learn to hide their hearts along with their feelings and thinking and all of that. They learn to hide their hearts because it's essentially to get along, go along to get along and um, in essence become invisible. They, they don't disrupt the things about the relationship that, you know, there's a lot about the relationship that is, that their survival is dependent upon. And so they become more and more invisible, silenced to this big person because of, you know, actually their survival methods. But that's where it starts when other people don't make room for them to even have a voice. I love that definition, Sharman. I love it. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to respond in just a moment, uh, Dr. Hunt. But Sharman, that seems to build upon my work. My work is largely teaching men, but both both parties in in the coupleship, but teaching them to hold space. And your definition said you didn't use the word holding space, but you're suggesting this person, this man, typically it's not always that gender, of course, which we which we talk about, but but that person doesn't hold space. They overpower, dominate. They act in superior ways. Is that all, that's all consistent with what you're saying that, that they lack the ability or the willingness to hold space and really attend to what this person is saying. Right. Their way of thinking is the only way of thinking in essence. And that ends up consuming the other person. They don't make any space. They don't hold any space for the other person to not be them and not think like them. Dr. Hunt, chime in. What do you what do you see about this dynamic? I think I'd, I'd add sort of two pieces to that. Also, the first being that as a result of what Sharman you just described, the second for me aspect of invisibility is then something that the woman does in some respects to herself. It's really for herself in the sense that she begins to live largely from a very self-protected point of view. What do I have to do to reveal as little as I can so as to keep myself out of the fire? And so there begin to be this massive amount of self-protective, defensive strategies, which Sharman kind of touched on there a bit. And so they're a prisoner not just to his behavior and disregard and his press to keep her silent, but I think there's also now a press within herself to remain silent. And, and then I'll add a third piece, which is that I think part of the invisibility extends beyond the marriage. There's invisibility in the rest of her life as, you know, 
there is often a sense of embarrassment, a sense of shame attached to what's going on inside the marriage that's difficult to share with other people. That's part of it. But the other part of it is that because much of this is happening behind closed doors, her view of him and her view of their interactions together is often at odds with other people's view of him. Oh, boy. So there's not a sense that she can take her experience and her story outside the marriage and be believed, be received well, be supported in that. And she learns that pretty quickly. I mean, she's tried and she's learned pretty quickly that doesn't go well. And so now she's not just invisible in the marriage, but she's invisible in the world and she's invisible in the rest of her life. And it live, it, it, she's living as though in a bubble, sort of, population one. I want to tell a quick story, Dr. Hunt and, and Charmin. Th- this is not meant to be funny, though. Though I think when I did the uh, when I did the YouTube video, it was seen as a little bit funny. But the topic of the video was conversation with a narcissist, and I start out, and th- this is a true story. I can remember the the marriage intensive and and the conversation went something like this. I, I I said on the YouTube video, I said, Yeah, I had a conversation with a narcissist today. And then I said, No, no, I I I really didn't. I tried to have a conversation with a narcissist. And I tried this way and I tried that way and I tried this way and I tried that way. And and I became more and more frustrated. This is this person's not hearing me. I'm not being and it it, it really was a profound experience for me. Meaning Holy cow, is this what women feel? I couldn't get heard. And so I started to, uh, to your point, Dr. Hunt, I started to withdraw more and more. And then as the YouTube video goes on, I said, I ended with, you know, I, I didn't have a conversation with a narcissist today. I tried and tried and tried, and I became sadder and more upset and more frustrated and more angry and more irritated. And I withdrew more and more and more and more till I remember, I, I don't know, I hope I was respectful, but I walked away from that marriage intensive that, at that, that afternoon. I remember exactly where I was, exactly how I felt. I'm feeling a little bit even right now, like I can't get heard. So is that in a much, much, I, I didn't have that experience and I don't have that experience. Thank God. I don't have it every day, but I had it for hours and hours and hours and it, it really impacted me. All right. Anyway, that that's that's sort of a vague. Is that what you're talking about, uh, Doctor Hunt or Sharman? Definitely. When you're when you're talking to someone who isn't making room, isn't hearing you, isn't even isn't allowing you to have your own perspective or your own thoughts, that everything is conformed to what they are saying or what they believe or yeah. how they want to do things, it becomes easier to just shut up and let them talk. Like you can't make room there. They're not offering you space to connect. They're just telling you who they are essentially. Again and again and again and again and again. And telling you who you are. Yes. Yeah. So, I want to touch on another t- another aspect of all of this. If anybody were that maybe this is what you were saying, Dr. Hunt, if anybody were to have walked up to my gathering, it was up on a hillside I'll leave it at that. It was up on a hillside in a really lovely home and where we did our work. If anybody were to walk up and watch me, that they and if I would have looked at them and said, I am really frustrated, they would have said, Why? Why? Joe's 
I don't get it. Joe is watching you. He's talking back to you. Yeah, but I'm not being heard. Well, what do you mean? He's there. He seems to be listening. He's giving you his own response. So it's so subtle. And the three of us and listeners are going to, they're nodding their heads right now as they listen to this. It's, it can be very insidious and very subtle. If you don't listen very, cl- if I don't listen very closely as a uh, professional, I would miss it. If I didn't feel what I was feeling on that hillside on that day, I wouldn't know it because you might not see it. You might not even hear it, but it's there. Can you speak to the subtleties of not holding space, of a person defending themselves, overpowering another? It often isn't, I'm kind of leading the question here, it often isn't a man saying to the woman, shut up, I'm going to be talking, though it could be that but it might be a more subtle overpowering domination and lack of really attending and empathizing with. And I'll stop with that. Okay. One of the, I'll call it a tactic. One of the tactics I see often from men who engage in what you've described is this, this battle plan where they want to get their partner in the weeds of a conversation and in the weeds, then they tussle and argue over is that exactly right? Is oh, that right, exactly right, right. happened in? Are those the exact words that were said in precisely the right tone of voice? And I think the women often um, get sucked in before they recognize what's going on. And by then it's way too late. And now he's begun to say in pretty rapid fire way, I didn't say that. That didn't happen then. You're remembering wrong. And now it becomes a more generalized character kind of assassination, but that so derails whatever the conversation was to be about, gets the woman off balance, off guard. Now she can't remember. She doesn't know how they got down this bunny trail, has no idea how to get her way back to the main path, doesn't know what she feels or even what just happened to her right now. Now that all happens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back just a tiny bit, Dr. Hunt. I think you okay. said... He tries to derail her. I'm not convinced about that. Does he do it? Is he argumentative? Is he overpowering? Is he superior? Is he all of the, he is all of those things. I'm not sure about the, he tries to, though it could be. Oh, I'm pretty sure. About oh, that okay. well, all right. All right. And, and <laughs> there's going to be listeners who say absolutely abs. He knows exactly what he's doing. And a few might go, I'm not sure, but I'll push back a tiny bit more. It's woven into his character. So, I mean, the the guys that I'm working with, man, like I could stop them and say, do you see what you're doing? And they look at me and go, what, what, what? All right. Anyway, I don't, Charmin, do you want to break the tie here or what do you want to do? Well, yeah, I was (laughs) going to flesh that out a little bit better. I think I think more often it's not about what they're trying to do to manipulate the other person. It's more about their own self-protection and the fallout of that is that the other person feels gaslighted or led down the weeds or deceived in some way. But it's, it's not that they're necessarily, the point isn't about trying to get their partner derailed. The point is their own self-protection and hiding the fallout is that their spouse is disconnected and derailed. That's how I see it. But but Dr. Hunt, you're, you do you want to you want to offer another perspective there? Do you you really think it's intentional? Not all of the time, not with everyone. Okay. 
So, so is some of it just self-protection? Sure. But, you know, th- there's sort of that truth of, I don't care whether we're talking about people or animals, we figure out how to get what we want, right? We figure out what strategies, what tactics, tactics get us the payoff that we're looking for, right? Whether that's self-protection or whether that's to, in some sense, win an argument. That I see that dynamic a lot in couples in high conflict, you know, trying to win the argument or whatnot. And so I, I do think, I mean, most of the couples that we deal with have been married for yeah, quite some time. Right. So these are well-worn paths, which probably do have a very habitual feel to them by now. And in that sense, might not be always so conscious. But I don't believe that they're entirely innocuous and just about self-protection. And again, this is not true of everyone, but I certainly do have a subset of clients that are very tactical, very purposeful. They're master negotiators that might even be part of their business life. They know how to control a room. They know how to control a conversation. And there is a sense of deliberateness and purpose about what they do. And that is actually what I mean by self-protection as well, right? That it's not just they're frightened little boys and you know, but that it is, they are controlling their world in such a way that they're getting what they want, keeping the status quo, not having to expose anything about themselves. So, so yeah, I think you and I were saying the same thing because self-protection is about hiding and controlling the world so that we're secure and safe. And Back to my experience. If you were to have walked up to me you, you, uh, on that hillside on that day, you would have seen me attempt again and again and again and again and again and again and again, you get my point, to try to make an impact, to try to be heard. And it wasn't until I became exhausted, which I want to make a note of that word, exhaustion, because I think invisibility also goes hand in hand with exhaustion and vice versa. But you would have seen me in the weeds, as you both say. You would have, I would have been in, I was in the weeds. You would have, I, I would have hoped you would have grabbed my arm and went, Dr. Hawkins, it ain't working. You are not going to get hurt. But all right, what I'm getting to that I'd like you both to respond to is in the weeds. So I find, Charmin, you've heard me use this word in our work together, maybe both of you have, where I see women get very sticky. They get, they're trying, 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 trying. And, and becoming exhausted to the point where they just, they're exhausted. Anyway, to, let's speak to that, to, to being in the weeds and wrangling with their husbands in an attempt to get heard, which we can sympathize with, we can empathize with it. And yet I would have hoped on that hillside, you would have come and grabbed my arm and said, don't do this. Don't do this. You're, you're going to emotionally die or be hurt or anyway. All right, in the weeds and wrangling and an attempt to be heard. Yeah, I think part of that is a hope issue. There is such a core longing in the hearts of all people to be seen and to be known and to be valued for what is seen and known and to be important in someone else's estimation. And again, for the couples that we work with who've been at this 10, 20, 30, some of my couples, 40 years of not feeling seen, not feeling heard, 
not feeling like a person or an equal partner in a marriage that's supposed to be that. There's such a deep drought going on in their soul, such a deep, long, wide, tall, high, broad experience of this being invisible that there really is a desperation then to be seen. And I think the hope, the sometimes misguided hope, but the hope that runs through them is if I just say it louder, try it harder, hold my If I just, one more time, surely the problem is that he just doesn't understand. If I can just make him understand whatever that looks like, if I can frame this in the way he's taught me to do it, if I can think of some brilliant new strategy, if I can whatever, fill in the blank, but there's this hope that lingers that if only I blah, 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 then he'll blah, 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 and this will be different. I think the confusion of that, the exhaustion of that is also compounded by our Christian belief system that we are to die to ourselves, right? Pick up our cross and carry it that, especially for us as women, that our responsibility is to be submissive to him according to current traditional definition. And what happens is while she's desperate for that, the dichotomy is that she's also learned to sacrifice herself to the marriage, her sense of self to the marriage. So even while she's asking for this, knowing it's good and right and true, she doesn't actually have a sense of responsibility to think for herself. And so she's arguing with him according to his terms because her greatest honor is to be submissive to him. And yet none of it's, it's all dysfunctional and disordered. And yet that's, that's that two pronged, the dichotomy there that makes it such a mess is it's a desperate longing of her heart. And at the same time, she's told to sacrifice that heart to the marriage and to his leadership. And when his leadership is messy, the marriage is messy. Boy, oh boy, Charmin, that that's so good. Let's tie it back to the title of this podcast. So she wrangles, she try, she's, Dr. Hunt, you're saying she's, there's a, de- I agree with you. There's a desperation. There's a desperation. She just perseveres. She keeps doing and da, 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 da. Anyway, trying to be heard, trying to, actually, I don't know that it's just trying to be heard. It is that, but what I see her, is, I mean, there's, he's doing some really crummy things, really crummy things, overpowering her, blame shifting, you know, all the things that we know about not taking ownership. Natalie Hoffman, uh, Sherman and Dr. Hunt, you know, Natalie Hoffman, and she says that much of this is a disorder of responsibility. He doesn't take responsibility. And she just, come on, come on, I need change. Anyway, so she keeps going. So she wrangles, she struggles, she's desperate to be heard, to make an impact. And then tie that back to invisibility. Let's, and then we'll, we'll move into uh, some other issues. How does the exhaustion lead to invisibility or what happens there? It becomes easier to hide. It becomes easier to become in to be invisible because then she gets a little bit of rest from, you know, wrangling with him. She gets a little bit of rest, so to speak, from his ire and it, It just becomes easier to conform to that, to be, you know, essentially a a corpse walking around invisible 
a ghost walking around invisible because she's so exhausted, because she's not being heard. No matter how many million different ways she said something, it's not being understood and he's not trying. So for the sake of the family, for the sake of her, the roof over her head and her ability to survive, it's way easier just to become invisible, to just be there, to be an empty shell. And Charmin, I'd love to connect that to what you said earlier about the press that women often feel within kind of Christendom to just submit somehow. I think another aspect of that press is this notion that women, particularly if they are mothers, but even if not, that part of what it means to be a woman is to put everyone first. Take care of everyone's needs before your own. Everyone gets served at the table before you do. Everyone gets all the stuff before you get whatever crumbs and leftovers are left. And in that modality, she also begins to disappear. There's not time or resources or energy space carved out for who she uniquely is apart from her roles as wife, as mom, as whatever the things are that she does. She's not a person. And we've talked about this, I think, in other contexts before, this idea that in a narcissistic world, the wife is often seen as an appendage or an accessory to his life rather than a person in her own right. And I think that's part of the invisibility, that she gets lost in that narrative, but she also gets lost amongst the roles that she plays and this idea that what she needs, thinks, feels, whatever's comes last in the pecking order. Because she's so good at caring for everyone else. No one has to care for her, right? That's right. It's her job to bring the care. And so, yeah, we see that often in, in all of those roles is that while she's, she is the one you know, helping make sure everyone is nurtured and has what they need and she's sacrificing herself, there isn't a lot of return there that looks at her and says, what do you need? How shifting slightly, Dr. Hunt and and Sherman, how, how do you see this invisibility showing up when you do have couple sessions and I, I I'm realizing even as I asked that question about couple sessions if you could if you could respond to that too because part and parcel of couples work as you both know is the ability to hold space and he can't do that for the most part so anyway how do you see it showing up in couple session and if you could tag into that the should we even be doing couple sessions if he hasn't done a lot of work? to be able to see her as an individual and to be able to come to the couple's session, to be able to really hear her and hold space for her and all these things that we know are needed to do marriage counseling. All right. So how does she show up in the session? And should we be doing, we're the marriage recovery center. Okay. I I know I'm, I'm in the weeds now. I think sometimes women are able to show up a little bit better in couple sessions, not because he'll hold the space. You're right. I mean, he, he often won't do that, but I will do that. Uh, and I will require uh, 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 him to uh. make So if he, if he won't bend to that press from me, if he won't hold space for him, then I will take whatever action I have to take to make sure that she has a place there. 
Well, are you saying by that, and then I want to get back to how does she show up? So, Dr. Hunt, are you saying, hmm, th- th- there's a lot of press out there that says we shouldn't be doing couples counseling if he can't pretty significantly come and, you know, all the, you know, all the good communication tools we have, empathize, active listening, validate, perception checking, you know, all these different tools, you know, and he's kind of coming in to many, many of the men I know coming into the couples counseling, like, this is Greek. Not only do I not, he doesn't say these words, but not only do I not want to do that, but I can't do that. Anyway, blah, blah. Do we, do you forge ahead sometimes? And that was brilliant what you just said about that I'm going to hold space as the professional in the room. But I mean, is there a time that we should be saying, nah, we're not, we're not going to do this? If there is a propensity to walk away from the sessions being triggered to be violent at home or aggressive at home or whatever, then that's definitely not a time to do couples work. And if it just always devolves in not getting anywhere, no matter how much we force the opportunity to hold space for her, then it's not time to do couples counseling. But I'm one to say, you know, I'm willing to walk into couple sessions with people who are very disconnected, whatever's going on, because it is always a really good opportunity to see who someone, how someone is really going to show up where the rubber meets the road. And it may not affect the outcome that either of them are looking for when they come, but it's a very good opportunity to see exactly what they're dealing with. And that becomes part of the healing journey. You know, there, there comes a point in all of our lives where we've got to let people be who they are without trying to conform them to something. And in that, decide if that's someone that we can stay in relationship with or, or better ways to be healthy and stay in relationship with them. And so I use it as that opportunity. It's not necessarily, especially at first, it's not about healing the marriage. It's about seeing what these two people are really like when they have the opportunity to come clean, to be authentic, to show up and to be real. But on that note, you know, how, how do I see this show up in the sessions? I would say a lot of times she doesn't show up. She comes, but every bit of her thinking and her conversation and what she brings as issues are all about him in his head, what he needs to do, what he's doing to her. Like it's nothing about really what she's feeling or what she needs or what she would like to have happen. Because again, she's, she's sacrificed all that to him with an expectation that if he would fix all those things, it would give her back her identity, which if he would fix all those things, then yes, it would definitely make the relationship better, but it's still, it's still consumed with him. She's given up her old sense of identity to what he's doing and thinking and feeling and how he's leading them rather than taking a sense of responsibility for her own self. I don't like this. If something doesn't change, I'm not going to stay in it. You know, that kind of thing. There's, there's not a big sense of that most of the time. It's all still consumed with being in his head, which you know, as part of what we have to unpack so that she can get a sense of her own self again and become visible. Dr. Hunt, do you want to speak to any of that? Mm, Where to start? (laughs) 
going back a, a paragraph or so, Charmin, to what you were saying right before that uh, about the benefit of still seeing them as a couple. I think part of that, I mean, you, you both know that data is one of my favorite words and that I talk about collecting data, observing data a lot with my clients. And I think one of the, one of the pieces of data that becomes important in a couple session is that the wife also gets to see his reaction to me. And so, you know, odds are he's not going to behave a whole lot better with me than he does, you know, elsewhere, or at least he'll, he'll, you know, try, try that. Because what's often in her head is that this is somehow specific to her. Right. And is a direct reflection, therefore, on her worth well, or lack. Well, he doesn't thereof. act this way with other people, quote unquote. Right. Until other people. <laughs> exactly. He will. Until he other, will. Right. And so I think that's part of what they get to see, that this isn't just directed at her, that he'll come at me too if I try to hold space for her, if I call him on whatever the thing is. And so I think that's that's some important data for her. It sort of broadens the framework from which to look at him. I, I agree with you, Dr. Hawkins, that there are times when it's not appropriate to continue in, in couples' work. When is it? Highlight that for for our listeners, when is that? This is, by the way, uh, another quick comment, Sharman. You both, I hope, know this. I have so much respect for both of you. Only part of why I have so much respect is that you you have a strength of character, a strength of thought, a strength of personality. Many therapists, we won't get off on this tangent, but we could. <laughs> Many therapists are just kind of going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, tell me what you two would like to talk about today. Tell me how it's going. And let's. Sh-. And you guys, Sherman, what you just said, like, hey, look, I can see what's going on here. I'm going to name it. I'm going to claim it. I'm going to identify it. And she just loves, like, holy cow. All right. Sorry, a little bit got ramped up there. <laughs> but I, listeners are going to go, man. We have put, who? Do, how do we get a hold of these these clinicians that are that are sh- that show up and they're willing to go toe to toe because he's dominant, forceful, overpowering. Okay, I'm off on a tangent. I don't even know where I went, but uh, I think it was good, Doctor Hunt. <laughs> so before your lovely tangent, thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate the compliment. Before that, you asked the question, what are the conditions under yeah, which we when do we say no? Don't? So I was talking with a woman yesterday, and she and her husband have actually recently divorced, but are still entangled emotionally, partly because they have children together and partly because they're really not done <laughs> sorting out the relationship right. yet. And so he had recently kind of shown up in conversation with her in a way that gave her access to a bunch of brand new information, like a a disclosure, a level of disclosure he had not ever walked in about himself and the marriage. So as it turns out, he has a pretty massive sexual addiction that was in play for the length of their marriage, all, all this kind of undercover, extramarital, you know, whatnot. And he is, you know, very deep in the throes of that deep in the throes of a lot of woundedness of his own that's never been addressed or healed and consequence dysregulation and immaturity of his person, of his emotional life, immaturity in terms of how he 
handles his pain and where he takes it. And anyway, just a whole host of stuff. And one of the questions she posed to me was, we are considering doing a marriage intensive. What do you think about that? And I grabbed hold of myself as quickly as I could. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Wanted to shriek, right? I don't do it. Um, Why not? Why not? Well, and so part of what I said to her was, you know, I need to ask you a question before that question. A, do you want to be married to this man that you now have a pile of information about that you didn't have before? B, as of this moment, apart from this bit of disclosure, he's still the same guy he was just a minute ago. Is there any reason to think that he's offering fertile ground for a relationship? Is he different enough to sustain any sort of different dynamic with you? Really, my question to her was, is this premature? Not saying don't do it down the road, but to engage in a marriage intense. Let's work on the marriage that we just ended. When he's not yet addressed any of this active pain and acting out and hiddenness and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's to set her up to get her heart engaged again, entangled again, with really poor odds of it going any differently than it did before. And so my encouragement to her was, yeah, sure, keep that in mind down the road. Excellent, great. But in the meantime, you need, back to my data word, you need to give him time and space to work on becoming other than he's been. and showing up that way in some stable sort of presentation, not just showing up in a better form here and there, hit or miss, never know which one I'm going to get, but showing up consistently as a different person than he offered to you previously. Only then can you really answer the question, am I even interested in engaging again in dating him or marrying him or whatevering with him? But you don't have enough data to answer that question right I love your protectiveness of her. Good on you. Yeah. Good on you that you you can see some things that she can't see that she couldn't see, and you were saying, "Hey, look, I, 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 I mean, it was just beautifully done, Doctor Hunt. You know, I can hear your heart. I can hear what you would like, and yet, boy, oh boy, can we talk a little more and and see if this is really a good step." Do you want to speak to that, Sharman, about when, when do we say, mm, let, let's hold off on couples work. Let's be careful here. Let's, by the way, this is a whole nother podcast, but when, when you said the words, uh, Dr. Hunt, give him time to do his work, that's, uh, please, we, we need to remember that, that there's a podcast on that. Uh, what is his work? Because just giving him time, I don't think that was your emphasis, by the way, because- no, 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 no. Get, yeah. time to do his W O R K. Sharman, when do we, when right. do we say, mm, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure about doing couples work at this point. I've had a lot of people lately ask me, what is our rate of success, you know, for our programs? And I tell them the A number one determining factor is the desire and willingness of both parties to do their work. Mm. If he doesn't really want to be there, for example, in this marriage intensive example, if he doesn't want to be, he doesn't really want to be there and, and, or he believes that his work is just to come 
and do the intensive, then there's not going to be any success and it will have been another, you know, wasted several thousand dollars and hours and, and she is going to walk away dis- disappointed because it doesn't matter how strong the program is. If it's just about, I did it and check the boxes. That's it. There's no implant. There's no implementation yeah. of what you learned. Knowledge is not power without implementation. So if there's no implementation of what he's been learning, then it's just going to be, there isn't going to be change and it's not going to bring the, you know, the life-changing event that she hoped for. But if he's had some time to prove consistently, because trust isn't what builds relationships, it is truth. So if he's truthfully walked out, which means meaning what he's saying, saying what he means, following through with what he says, that kind of truth. He's walking that out and and proving to the world around him, not just her, but to himself as well, that he's doing this because he wants to be a better man. He wants to become a better version of himself. He wants to bring a better everything to the table. Well, then you're going to have a much more higher rate of success. But if he doesn't, and he's just checking a box, then it's going to be another box that got checked. I love that you said that, because I think sometimes the form that takes is him doing work, so to speak, to get her back, to, to win her back, to get the marriage you know, back intact with that very specific goal in mind. And doing it just for that reason is so different than doing it because in my core, I am deeply pained by the man I've been. I, I lost respect for who I've been. I feel shame by who I've been. And in my deepest of deep places, I don't want to be that man. I want to be some other man, even if it's not with this woman. You know, if the marriage was off the table, if she wasn't an option, do I still want to be a different man or is this just, again, another tactical move at her back to keep her in place? And if it's just a tactical move, it still leaves her invisible. Yes. Yeah. By the way, and I would just say to anyone listening, we can help you discern these things, correct, Dr. Hunt and Sharman? That, in other words, a man who is really, really changing. Everybody on the planet knows. You, you can see. You can feel. You can you can feel his earnestness. So anyway, that that's. Would you both agree that that's discernible? That you can tell what a, a man's motivations are if he's just quote checking the boxes, or if he is diving into his work in maybe the core, or maybe celebrate recovery. Maybe it's reading some good books. Maybe it's doing going to his individual. Anyway, you can see it, feel it, touch it, experience it. And he's implementing what he's he's learning. So he's not just doing the courses. He is, yep. So it's not just about he's learning, so maybe he's changing. It's no, he's learning and he's doing it. And you see that transformation because it's coming from a heart position rather than just a, a works position, a behavioral position. And it produces that attitude shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right. Want to pivot for the last few minutes here? Let's let's talk about what are some things that you look for to be assured that she's on the right track towards healing, towards 
coming uh, out of the shadows, coming out of out of her invisibility, out of her voicelessness, out of the how do we encourage her today? And what are some things you look for to say, yeah, you are heading in the right direction? I look for the same things that we just mentioned about him, this sense of owning who I am and what I bring to the table. So, you know, initially when usually when they come, she comes to counseling, she's talking all in terms of what he's doing and what he's thinking and all of that. When she starts shifting into owning her own thinking and feeling and sense of direction and, and, you know, what she's bringing to the table to build the relationship on, that says she's on the right track as well. It's still paying attention to what he's doing, but not consumed by it, not engulfed in it. She's actually speaking for herself and taking more purposeful steps to get there. Another word, I don't know if you use this word, but you, so you, you're looking for an encouraging individuality. She's not enmeshed in the mess as much. She is, she's pulling apart. She's got her own direction. She knows anyway, she's, she's inner directed, not outer directed. Some of those things. Is that also what you're saying? Because that's what builds the relationship. Like you can't build a healthy marriage and have two healthy people unless those you can't, that's backwards. (laughs) The fruit of people that are steadfast and they know who they are and they know what their gifts are and their place in the world and what they want and where they're going, that builds the healthy marriage. The fruit of that is a healthy relationship, right? It's easy to have conversations. It's easy to speak what you're thinking, what you're feeling. It's easy to collaborate when you know who you are and what you're bringing to the table, right? There's no collaboration when you don't know who you are and you're just trying to make this marriage tell you who you are. Dr. Hunt, how do we, what are some signposts that you look for and use to help her be assured that she's on the right track toward healing, that she's heading in the right direction and the mile markers are, yeah, 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 yes. You know, in, in my mind, one of the, one of the largest signposts has to do with anxiety and fear and the paralysis that creates. So, For so many of the women I work with, there is this overriding terror, this overriding panic, this overriding anxiety that kind of dances around this territory of the marriage has to work. It has to succeed. What will I do without him? How can I live? And part of it is that loss of confidence that's come from being demeaned and dismissed and all that stuff for all these years. And She's lost confidence in her ability to manage life without him. It could be financial jeopardy that she feels. How will I, how will I, you know, provide for my own life? But when those anxieties, when that panic sets in, there's a paralysis that comes with it. The paralysis disallows her from hearing her own pain, from knowing her own need, because if she looks at that too closely, it might cause her to act boldly. It might (laughs) cause her to act. Good. It might cause her to say things that are unpopular. It might cause disruption. And that disruption in the beginning, that thought of disruption terrifies her. So for me, a sign of progress is her beginning to be at a place where she's willing to know what she feels. She's willing to come to grips with what has happened to her in her story. She's begun to say, it's worse than I know. 
she's begun to let those words and those feelings kind of bubble up. She's gained the courage to say disruption may not be the worst thing in the world. There are worse things, for example, than being divorced. Until she copes with that possibility. Until she gives herself permission to consider that idea. She's going to feel trapped into the marriage, which then traps her into voicelessness and it traps her into living small. And so as odd as this may sound for the Marriage Recovery Center, as odd as this may sound, I think a sign of progress is them considering the idea that I don't have to stay. And this is not me saying that they should pursue that route. Exactly. Yeah. But if they never allow for that there might come a place where if he will not regard me, I may have to regard myself. If he will not make room for me, I will have to make room for my own life. If he will not value my heart, I will. If she can't make room for that possibility, this is going nowhere for her. Your words resonate with me absolutely, and with our listeners, of course, and with the Marriage Recovery Center, Dr. Hunt. So it's good. This is called breaking out of codependency. It's called healing from invisibility. It's called healing from trauma. It's called healing. And my goodness. Well, what a wonderful, deep, deep discussion, uh, Sharman and Dr. Hunt. You know, I just have so much respect for both of you, and I, I know our listeners can hear you guys, uh, you folks have gone the journey. You, you've got the credentials, you got the experience, and it's just so, so good to spend time with you. So thank you so much for being here today. I really, really appreciate it. And us. our listeners do too. Yeah. yeah. So listeners, as always, if any of this resonates with you, please know that we are available to help. Dr. Hunt's available. Sharman Kimbrough is available. You can reach out to us by visiting our website, www.marriagerecoverycenter.com to learn more about what we do. And you can find that information in our show description. And if you, sh- you enjoyed today's podcast, please give it a five-star rating. This is a little odd to ask for that, but okay, I'm, I'm asking for it. <laughs> give us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to our channel to be notified of new episodes. So thank you again so much, Dr. Hunt and Sharman Kimbrough, and, and thank you for our listeners for tuning in, and we will talk again very soon. God bless. God bless.